0: Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that you can better develop products your customers love as a product person, or at least you've heard of how important it is to talk with customers. Also, if you're not a complete noob, you also know that we can't just simply ask customers what they want. I've been in some interviews like that a long time ago and they're kind of painful instead. What do we ask them, right? That's a pretty good question. How do we conduct an effective customer interview? Well, we're about to find out from the go-to person on customer interviews, Steve Portigal. Rich Marinoff, past guest of this show and CPO of CPOs, said that Steve is the go-to veteran for field research and interviewing users. Steve is an experienced user researcher and consultant who helps organizations to build more mature user research practices. He's also the host of the Dollars to Donuts podcast, which just makes me hungry, where he interviews people who lead user research in their organizations. His work has informed the development of professional audio gear, wine packaging, medical information systems, design systems, video conferencing technology, music streaming services, and more. I love that the work that we do really does work across industries. And you may already be familiar with Steve's highly regarded book, Interviewing Users, how to Uncover Compelling Insights. He's recently updated this book, creating a second edition, which we'll talk about a little bit. And as a reminder for everyone on their journey towards product mastery, we create a detailed written summary of everything we discuss. We also prepare a one-page action guide for you to immediately put into action some of the key takeaways that will come up in this discussion. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com 471 podcast is made possible by the rapid product master experience that's the rpm experience that helps product vps and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing product to increase their performance working in alignment to reach those north star objectives what we do is we meet virtually for nine weeks 75 minutes each week and your product professionals will learn the seven essential product knowledge areas and build trust and collaboration in the process it's unlike other training. It is an experience together, and we really do put the concepts into practice as we go. To see how this is unique, go to productmasterynow.com RPM, and I expect it can help your organization as it has, has helped others as well. Steve, thanks so much for joining us and helping us understand how to do user interviews.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to be here.
0: I I am delighted to have uh, this discussion. This is a frequent topic that comes up is, what do we ask users, right? Uh, How do we actually get this done? Uh, But first, your book, uh, very well known, Interviewing Users. Um, Why do we need a second edition? If
1: people are watching, I'm going to hold up the cover because, hey, we can use the power of, of video for that. That's right. Here is the second edition. Yeah. Why do we need a second edition? It's 10 years since the first edition was published. And boy, I would have said for a long time, oh, nothing has changed. This book is evergreen. It's about talking to people. This is sort of fundamentals. So I think there's a couple of things. One is the fields that we all kind of work in have changed. There was a little bit of discussion 10 years ago about doing remote user research. Lo and behold, the last few years of all work being remote for the most part, or all sort of knowledge work anyway, remote research is how a lot of this is being done. And and I wanted to talk more in depth about what we know, kind of what the best practices are, or even as they're still emerging. There's another thing that's changed in the sort of the field of user research, which is the emergence of an adjacent field of research operations. We didn't, I don't think we had that word 10 years ago. And so a lot of the sort of problems that we want to solve when trying to figure out the logistics of doing research are actually considered in context by the operations function. And these are all things you could write whole books about. And I'm trying to sort of tell a larger story. Mm. And then the other thing I'll say is that this is 10 more years of me doing research of teaching research. And so I'm always learning. I'm always making my own mistakes, coming up with better examples and getting excited. This is what I want to tell people. This is a much better way to understand it. Because I've been living with these ideas for much of my career. And I think it was an opportunity to, while we're adding new stuff to talk about and filling in gaps that maybe were there, like I didn't talk about working with the data too much 10 years ago. Also just fixing up the stories, updating them. I have just better examples that I'm more excited to share that kind of brings the book up to date.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. A big shift. Obviously you've learned a lot in the last 10 years and you're bringing that, those uh, fresh insights and the experience interactions you've had with uh, people in this field. That makes a big difference, but the remote uh, aspect has definitely changed. Right? So we were doing some of this before COVID, but that really pushed things forward and uh, it, it saves us time. It saves us dollars and there's a lot that we can accomplish in remote user research. So that's a good thing to add. Okay. On to some details here, because uh, I often do hear this question, well, what is it we ask customers? And there's usually a little bit, if we have more experience with this, maybe not. But a lot of people express some nervousness around doing customer interviews. And part of it comes from, well, we're only going to have time to do so many. And if I screw them up, I'm not going to get any good data. And am I asking the wrong things? And very early in my career as an engineer, not really being product-wise yet, I would say, I was I was doing some of these sessions that someone else was leading, and the first question was typically like, well, what do you want? And that just seemed really ineffective, and we never got good information from that question. <laughs> so we have to do a better job than that. So I'm hoping that you can lead us through this. What do we need to do to ask customers the right questions?
1: Well, and first of all, congrats on sort of having a counterexample. I think that's how we learn, Right. I, what do you want seems like at a certain level of experience, that's where we should start. If we don't know what people want, we're going to go ask them. So if that's where you're at, congrats. That is a huge mind shift as opposed to assuming that you know what people want. And then I think you're pointing the way to the next level of progression, which is, well, that doesn't quite work. How do we kind of override our instinct? And I think there's a, a few related I'll call them questions or problems. I guess they're questions. One is the business question, the business challenge. And that is a thing that we have to ask ourselves. What do we want to do? What do we want to change? What's coming up? We're at end of life of some of our infrastructure. And so we have to revisit how we roll something out or there's a new competitor or something has changed in the world that is kind of pressing, uh, creating pressure on our pricing model. There's things that we as the company, as the producer, have to understand and act on. So being clear about that, in other words, why are we doing this research, I think is the first step to be able to get to what do we ask people. The second piece is the, is the I'll call it the research question. What do we want to learn from people in order to have a point of view, in order to inform or, or take action on this business challenge? and I'm just making these up, if there's some change externally that's put pressure on pricing models, we might want to understand from people what kinds of things they pay for, how those budgets are planned, how they think about value versus cost. I don't know, those kinds of questions that would make us smarter about how they're spending money. So there's a couple of research questions. They're pretty high level They're like, what do we want to learn so that we can answer those questions for ourselves, this business question? Uh And then the the third piece, and these are all tied together. The third piece is, let's just call them the interview questions. These are the things that you ask people. And I think a big takeaway for people, hopefully, is what you want to learn is not the same as what you ask. Uh If we want to understand where people find the most value in their certain kinds of budgetary spending. Maybe not. We say to them, well, okay, tell me where you find the most value in your budgetary spending. I don't know. That may not be the best way to get there. And understanding that you craft a set of questions, you build a discussion guide that has a flow that sets context that asks them, what do you do? How do you do it? How long have you been doing it? What are your big problems? Where does budgeting fit into those larger problems that you have? What changes have you seen? I don't know. Again, I'm just kind of making this up very quickly, but you build this larger sort of flow. It's the discussion. It's a guide for a discussion. And Mm -hmm. in that, your goal is to use that interaction. You have that interview to walk away with answers to the questions that you have as research questions, but you may never literally ask that person to say the words. You are going to, you the interviewer, you're the person who's doing research are going to be able to answer those questions, but you use the interview to ask many questions to get a larger context that gives you perspective so that you can therefore conclude what answers there are to your research questions so you can help the organization take action on those business challenges. That's a lot. I'll stop there.
0: (laughs) That's really good. I think we maybe we'll break that down a little bit. One thing that you talked about in that was say, well, you mentioned, tell me what you've done before, that that sort of thing, right? What are some examples? And I think that's really useful to get users talking about specifics that they've engaged in, like actions they've taken. That's much more concrete than asking someone what we, well, what what do you think you would do in this situation, right? Yes. We want to know what they've actually tried before. And you talked about, you mentioned an interview guide. So maybe you could take us through maybe some of the preparation stages to do, and then maybe we can get to some of the interview best practices uh, that take place.
1: Once you understand, yeah, let's just say your business question and your research question, you need to think about your sample, which is the the fancy, smart sounding word for who we're going to talk to. And I think you can be creative in your sample. Do you want to talk to Current customers, prospective customers, competitors, customers. You want to talk to lead users. I think a lot of organizations that are sort of low sophistication in user research talk to the same people over and over again because they have relationships with them. They might put them on a council or make it kind of official. But I I invite you to be intentional about who do we talk to that's going to give us the most information. And it's not that we want to talk to customer X to ask them what they want so we can fix things for customer X. It's we want to talk to people that will give us a deeper insight about the situation so that we can make decisions about what changes we want to make. Mm -hmm. So customers that abandoned your product for whatever reason or customers, whatever, there's just people you have different kinds of relationships with. Lead users are people we probably shouldn't be building for because they, they know how to solve problems in different ways. But their ways of solving problems by, I don't know, ganging together a lot of different infrastructure might give us insight into, well, what does it look like when that problem is overcome? So we might choose to talk to them because it gives us something. So we're not trying to represent our customer base so that we can survey them, solve their problems. We're trying to understand our research, the answers to our research question. So who's going to give you that? So making some decisions about who that's going to be, figuring out the tactics to get to those people. I think that's, Mm -hmm. I might just leave that at that. That's a whole thing. It's going to be very localized. How are you going to get to those people? What are you going to ask them for? And then what what are you going to request from them? And then what are you going to ask them? So that's when writing that discussion guide comes. So sitting down and preparing a document that I call it like the platonic ideal. Like no interview looks like the guide that you write, but by having written that guide, it's a great tool to circulate with stakeholders and colleagues and have them say, oh, we're not asking them about this or why are we asking them this question? Or I also hope we can talk about this. So everybody is a chance to kind of align about what we think these interviews are going to look like. They typically don't go like the guide, but having written the guide, you are in such a better position to respond to something that comes up, right? It's it's chance favors the prepared mind is the cliche here, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. create the plan because then you can react much easier. Yes, that's a much more concise way of saying it. Oh, I liked your quote. That was good. When it comes to thinking about the sample, I, I have too often encountered humorous situations where the wrong sample is picked and because they picked the convenient one, right? We really want, we're thinking about this new market to expand to, but we'll go ask our existing customers a set of questions to help us have insights about this other market. Is that market, if we're expanding to a new market, it's probably because it's not like the current one, right? So those sort of things are pretty important to make sure there's alignment between who we want to ask and what our, our research objective is.
1: It's so much better to have somebody object to your sample at the beginning than at the end of some study when you're sharing what the implications are and they say, okay, well, did you talk to anybody that's in this kind of situation? Right. At that point, they're kind of using that to discount everything that you're sharing. So have a proposal. If you're going to talk to current customers about future products, you better have a rationalization for how you think that's going to work. And maybe there's some kind of a pr- workaround that makes that effective. Or maybe they just want to make everyone aware that, hey, there's trade-offs here. We can't find these other customers. We're going to start here. Here's what we're going to learn. Right. It's going to take us this far in our understanding. Yeah, you just want to be aware and intentional. of It's all trade-offs, as is everything. Have that plan and be aligned on it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Re- really good. So I like thinking about the interview guide or the proposal to help you get ready for the interviews, but uh, I think a really good slant that you have on that is it's a great collaboration tool to get all the internal stakeholders that care about this on the same page and help make this a better outcome uh, that we're going after. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so some good prep considerations. And we're coming up with an interview guide that we're not necessarily following line item by line item. It's a a place to get us started. So that being said, some of us, I'm certainly feeling a little bit more nervous now, but I I thought that's why I created this thing. I can just read and ask the questions. What is it we're doing in the interview?
1: Yeah, and I think this depends on your experience. What we're not doing is... I like what you said. We're not going through the guide line by line. And in fact, all the good stuff, I'll make a bold declaration, all the good stuff comes from follow up And so we ask lots and lots and lots of follow-ups. And my sort of fantasy for an interview is that it's like, and this may just be a weird Steve thing here, but I like peeling like a tangerine and trying to see, can I do it all in one, right? You start with one little hole and then if the whole thing kind of comes out, that's how I imagine the best interview in kind of a comical way you ask one question and then everything else is follow-up every question that you ask comes from something that they just said and so what's happening there is a lot of really great stuff you are connecting with that person and engaging in a certain way such that everything that they say is important because you have another thing that you want to know that kind of builds on that and the you cannot underestimate the power of that that's a gift to somebody, the person that you want to talk to that to tell them honestly that their information is important and valuable to you is sort of the, it's one of the energies I call it rapport in the book that makes these interviews kind of come out. So asking follow up questions is sort of a great rapport builder, but it, and it's not just that the people like it is like that's how you're actually having a discussion. What budgetary uh, line items did you calculate for 2023? Um, are you using Excel or Google Sheets? Uh, like that's sort of like one, two, three kind of questioning thing. There's no depth. And, and the thing is, people don't know how much of an answer you want. So if you ask them, are you using Excel or Google Sheets? Uh, they're going to say, Excel. Uh, and in fact, if you do nothing else, if you do nothing, they might just wait a second and then say, because we standardized on Google Workspace. But in fact, a lot of people are still running bootleg local copies of Excel because they use this in this kind of function, which isn't in Google Sheets. So in that example, I didn't even ask a follow-up. I just left space right. for them. But if you just ask the questions and collect the answers, you're not going to... It's as good as asking people, what do you want? You're not really getting what's behind what's behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so giving them space... But then you asking follow-up questions. Well, why is that? Um, you know, what led to that change? You don't, Not everything is like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. But you are trying to sort of spelunk, poke around in the dark with a flashlight and kind of see where the corners are. Like what's behind that? Why is that? Mm-hmm. Again, you're looking for your own understanding, not just checking off questions. So the follow-up is like your curiosity. You're very present with that person. When they tell you something, you want to be thinking a little like, why is that? That's a surprise to me. I thought I assumed that it was this, like your biases are kind of coming into play. And they're really great triggers for new questions, these follow ups. I'll say one more thing and then stop. You can't really do a real interview like the tangerine, right? In fact, there's points at which you have to switch gears. And so that technique that here I think is really important. I call it signaling your lane changes. Just telling someone, well, this is really great. I want to switch topics a little bit here and now move to your procurement process. So so just by saying to them that you're switching topic tells them again what, that what they're saying is important, you're interested, and you are kind of partnering with them to shift the flow of the conversation. You're going to have to shift topics. It's inevitable and it's fine. Just telling them that you do that you're doing that, I think, really helps with that. That really good listening rapport energy that makes the interview right. so effective.
0: Right? Yeah, really good. Everything you said there was so helpful. The, the one I want to double down on is curiosity, because often when I'm asked, well, how how do I do interviews? Right. And not being an expert in this, but having done a lot and maybe some not particularly good, my, my simple response is usually things around, well, you have to be, if you're nothing more than just really curious, like you're trying to understand their problem, what they're trying to get done, how they've done things before. And if you can get them to share some stories, you're 90% of the way there, right? And being curious as over time, it's easy to see people build up a bias towards how they know things are done, right? And to bring that into the interview, how do we ward that off? How do we stay curious uh, and sincere about learning something new from customers?
1: Yeah, I think bias is very natural. Like it's a word that has a lot of sort of bad meanings that tie to sort of social ills and so on, but sort of cognitive bias, believing something because this is what I hear every day in my workplace or because it's my mm-hmm. aspiration. Like it's a very human thing. And so I don't want anyone to feel bad about that. And I think, cause I think feeling bad about it is like, it's the way to make it harder to overcome it. What I think is that like when I do an interview and I uncover one of my biases, I hear it. Somebody says, I ask a question, somebody says something. And in my head, this is all my inner monologue. I like, oh, my question was dumb or my question acknowledged. I assume something about this person or I assume something about this workflow. That is like the most fun feeling. I actually think it's very joyful. And you could easily say, well, now I feel stupid and I'm I'm bad because I have biases. But I think why are we doing this research to begin with? It is to learn things that we don't know that we don't know. And our assumptions mm-hmm. about the world that we couldn't have articulated until someone knocks our sandcastle down, that's pretty exciting. That's made this whole conversation worth it. And not that every bias that you overcome is an insight about your project, product or your project, but it's put you in that mode where you realize you've been holding on to something. So we can do all those sort of good hearted. And there are tactics to sort of get better at you letting go of our biases and, and sort of allowing ourselves to be curious. I think I guess I'll, I'll offer that as the tip today, though, is feeling good about being able to hear it when it happens and feeling good about that, because for sure you're going to come in with biases and the, the skill is not to not have biases. The skill is to like be able to hold on to multiple truths at once. I like how you kind of asked it. we want to get that person's story. And so you can set your biases and your worldview, as I say in the book, set your worldview aside and use the interview to embrace somebody else's worldview and have set that intention. Like that makes you curious. Someone says something. Why is that? How did it get to be like that? What could change it? That's what you're in the business of anyway, right? Is, well, how can we, what might we change? What circumstances might change? What interventions might change so that... The person's experience or outcome is different. And what role do we have to play in that? Like the whole intention of doing research is so curious to begin with. So you want to just be excited about that. I think it's, I don't think it's a magic trick. I think it's just reminding yourself what you're doing and why you're doing it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. be, Be aware of that. As you're talking about that, that phrase, begin with the beginner's mind not making those assumptions, not being the expert that really knows how this works. Because if if we're the product manager on the product, we know how the product works. And we designed it. We built this thing in response to customers' problems. And it's easy to insert ourselves into the mind of the customer doing those interviews and think, oh, they just don't have a good understanding of how this really works. I might even stop and tell them how it really works, right? Instead, if we have that beginner's mind and just approach it as, hey, I want to hear what they think about this problem and how they approach it.
1: Well, the, and the pronouns really important, right? I want to hear what they think, how they approach it. Mm-hmm. And that's a question. that's a question that doesn't diminish your, I'm a product manager, I know everything about this. Like both things can be true. True. Right? You have your organizational professional truth and you wanna know how they do it. And they could be right or wrong. You don't need to kind of deal with that in the interview, but Yeah. Beginner's mind is great, but it doesn't negate your expert's mind. It's just you compartmentalize them. The interview is not your whole day. It's not your whole life. It's a way of being for a specific period of time to achieve an outcome. And so being intentional and setting those things aside for the time being is, I think, the key here.
0: Okay. For the actual conducting of the interview, the questions, I've usually approached this from the perspective that two people are better than one doing the asking part. So if you and I were interviewing, you might be taking the lead on the questions. I'm there just to record as we go. So you're not overloaded doing that, too. Um, And also, I think my job as recorder is to make other observations, right? So if we're doing this over video or even in person, the, the body language can be significant. I like that model. I don't know what your thoughts are on how you actually like to conduct the interview.
1: Yes. I think what I would say was fairly close to you. I would maybe, I think I have a slightly elevated role for the, I call it the second interviewer. The first interviewer controls the flow of the interview. So that example of, okay, now we're going to switch to talking about procurement. That's what the first interviewer does. The second interviewer doing all the things you're talking about, recording, listening very deeply. The second interviewer will identify things to be curious about that will have gone past the first interviewer. So for me, if I'm the lead and I have somebody else that will catch those things, and I think that the trick is is how you and I sort of figure out Mm -hmm. our body language and, and what are our tactics, I will usually, and the more I interview with someone, the more I can see them shift in their chair. If you're listening and not watching you, I'm doing a little chair shifting. People just, when they have a question, they make a mouth noise or they breathe or exhale. It's harder over video to kind of do that. But I know when somebody has a question, I might even look at them in just a minute, but I will just make space in those transitions. So if you and I were interviewing together, I would find this transitional moment and say, Chad, I want to switch topics for a second. But before we do that, of the things we've just finished talking about, do you have any questions right Mm -hmm. now for Paul? And then that's your chance. And some cases, my second interviewer is not quote a researcher, not comfortable. They might ask me the question, Can we ask him about? Or I hope we're going to talk about. They might just throw me the topic and I could say, That's great. We're going to get to that. Or, Yeah, that's a great question. So, Paul, blah, 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 blah. I can fix their question. We can have an open dialogue in front of our participant about what we want to talk about next Sure. sporadically creating those moments where that other person can kind of come in because they they add so much value there's always going to be things that i don't see that i don't think about and so i like getting not too much jostling i like to manage the flow but Mm -hmm. i like someone to come in and kind of suggest something Um, and that's i think you're right two is the magic number three people is now like an audition for that poor individual that's being interviewed, but two is a nice dynamic, I think.
0: Yep. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I love the scenario that you put together, right? And if you threw it to me, I, as that second interviewer, I know I'm more attuned to watch body language and listen to certain things. And I might say, Paul, what was that sigh about when, when Steve asked you that question, right? Just, just to dig a little bit deeper, right? Yeah, what, what's going example. on there? Great example. Okay. We're not going to do justice to this question, but- Briefly, on data analysis, say we've conducted some interviews, let's give it a number. We've conducted 20 interviews, we have responses. What are we going to do?
1: Yes, so we'll, we'll try to do the highlights of this. Some people talk about the ratio of hours spent in analysis and synthesis as being two to one. And I think people tend to, if you're new to this, your assumption would be not even the inverse of that, just that you do a fraction. I think people, the activity that I see is more like debriefing. Come back, write up your top 10. And so what people kind of do is sort of concatenate, kind of aggregate statements that people made. Uh, but the the gold lies in this deeper effort. And that is based on analysis and synthesis. Analysis is taking large things and breaking them, them, them down into smaller ones. We talk to somebody for an hour. They give us lots and lots of pieces. We pull out eight, 10, 30, 60, I don't know, the proportions can vary. But that process of taking an hour-long interview and pulling out some set of things about that person, not conclusions, just distillations, that analysis is really, really key. You're not saying these are the only, it's not permanent. You can always go back that interview and pull more things out, but that forcing function to pick some set of things. Synthesis is taking small things and organizing them in a new way to make something new and larger. Taking, We talk to 20 people, which is a lot, and we break those down into some small sets of pieces. This is where people are in mural boards or mural or on actual sticky boards. And they're kind of taking these broken down pieces and and figuring out how to reorganize them. Affinity Maps is one of them. And this is where you start creating frameworks or two by twos that kind of create segmentations or a top 10 list of priorities, you create new things. No one ever said these things. You're creating them. This That's what makes it synthesis. It's new stuff that's being produced. So how much analysis you do, how much synthesis you do, you've got to kind of right size that for your project. How complex is your question? Because I think you run the risk of going back to your example of asking people what they want, we interviewed somebody, they said a bunch of things, here's what they said, we tabulated them, here's what we're going to do. You're better than what you want, but you're still missing the, all the nuance, right? All the mm-hmm. things that are kind of in the silences between the, the data that you have, to be a little elliptical about it. You have to make something new, then that's what you're creating is your point of view, your belief, your narrative, a new story that gets put together from that data, Yes, this is a much longer conversation, but as kind of a philosophical kind of guidepost, I'll, I'll I'll leave it like that.
0: Yeah, I know we're not doing justice to the topic at all, but it's a good place to start and even just setting the boundaries, like have that expectation that the analysis and synthesis will take twice as long as the actual interview time. So that that gives us some scoping that's really helpful. Okay, really good information, how to think about preparing for the interview, getting everyone on the same page of the internal stakeholders. That's great to collaborate with them, know what we're going to do, actually conducting the interview, being curious about that, getting the interviewee to tell stories, doing it in pairs, have the first interview, or the second interview, and the expectations to spend some time digging into the data and getting the details so we can then build our synthesis. As listeners know, we also like innovation quotes whenever we talk to guests I asked you to bring us one and uh, share what that means to you as well
1: i do have a visual aid again like, this is this poster i have of andy warhol and the quote is the world fascinates me and i like that because it's it's just a great statement about being curious about the world and kind of being excited uh, i think the source is fascinating it's andy warhol he's a person who we might think was a maker he put things into the world he he changed the world he changed Institutions and industries and the cultural conversation about art, so that someone that we experience as having changed and sort of produced and put things out for him to be saying that he's kind of anchored around wanting the world to come into him and 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 choosing we talked about sort of choosing to be curious like he's choosing fascination as kind of a, an angle of looking at the world, so I think well even he for all that he did kind of you know does that i think it's it's kind of a it's, but it's kind of an inspirational uh, example for me to think about. Yeah, I want to always be fascinated by the world no matter where I'm at and what I'm doing.
0: And underscores cu- the need for curiosity. So Absolutely. That's really well. Thank you so much for that. For listeners that want to find out about your work, resources you have, certainly your books, your podcast, tell us how we can do that. I think there's two
1: places. And if you have my name, you kind of have all the ways to find me. My website is... Portugal.com. So the podcast is archived there. Information about all the books is there. There's multiple books that we didn't even talk about today. Mm -hmm. My consulting work, things that I'm writing, other resources I'm sharing are there. And I'm active on LinkedIn. So if you have my name, you know how to find me and people are welcome to follow or connect and see stuff that I'm talking about user research and other things about user experiences in general. Fantastic. Those are the places I'd send people.
0: Okay. Well, make sure the links are in the show notes to uh, portugal.com and your LinkedIn profile. And we typically include a link to books on Amazon. Does, does that work as a, a reasonable place to get it?
1: Amazon is good. I will say that the publisher, Rosenfeld Media, is mm-hmm. a nice way to support a smaller business. And if you buy from Rosenfeld, you get a digital If you buy a print copy from Rosenfeld Media, you get a digital copy with it. And Amazon, I don't think, doesn't do that. Amazon definitely sell lots of books through Amazon, but I'll also say raise my hand for the publisher.
0: Yeah, that's great. Okay, I appreciate that. Thanks again. I was so much looking forward to this discussion. My chance to ask you questions (laughs) about how do we do uh, interviewing users, so a little meta there and really good information. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate you being with us.
1: Thanks for the great questions, the great follow-ups,
0: and the good discussion. It was great to chat with you. And for listeners, you will find the written resources we talked about earlier, the summary of everything we discussed in writing, and that one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately what we discussed. As well as that's a very good guide for you to share with your colleagues if you want to dive deeper into these topics. Those resources are at productmasterynow.com 471. Everyone keep innovating.
1: Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.